This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We're very, very happy to have uh, Amy Wesley to, to kick off our conference this morning. Amy is the Executive Director of the Association of Regional Center Agencies in Sacramento, also called ARCA, um, and Amy is going to give us an update on what ARCA is, is doing these days. So, Amy. Amy grew up in Sacramento, and um, if she doesn't give you a thumbs up for Lady Bird, the movie, I will. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for having me here this morning. I was uh, sharing with people over uh, coffee and juice this morning that I was here last year at the very tail end of a day, and people were a little bit tired. And so I guess it's sort of like Icarus pushing, or not Icarus, it's the guy who pushed the rock up the hill. Sisyphus. It's escaping me this morning, which tells me it's too early to really talk about Medicaid. (laughs) So you'll have to bear with me. And I will do my absolute best to try to make Medicaid and the financing of the services that people uh, rely on as interesting as possible. But I'm not working with terribly compelling information here. My apologies, I did not provide the staff with uh, a biography of myself. I did want to note before I got started that I, prior to working at the Association of Regional Center Agencies, I did work for Central Valley Regional Center for five years, and I know some of my Central Valley friends are in the audience. And I also worked for Alta California Regional Center for five years and um, also worked for Disability Rights California. So that's just my way of saying that this really is a um, passion of mine, and um, unfortunately, um, passion has to be backed up with financing, and that's why we're all here at 8 a.m. to talk about Medicaid. Maybe. Oh, okay, a little bit of a delay, probably in me, not the system. So um, just first things first, I have no financial relationships to disclose, no conflicts of interest, and won't be promoting any commercial products or services here today. Except for, of course, go see Ladybird. <laughs> but I don't have a financial interest in that, so I think that's okay. <laughs> Um, Fantastic coming-of-age story about a young girl um, being raised in uh, our state's capital. This morning, we're going to talk about the basics of federal Medicaid rules, special Medicaid programs, and really the heart of it all, how we can advocate for the essential Medicaid programs that people with developmental disabilities rely on. So first, let's talk about the basics of Medicaid. Medicaid began in 1965. It was a federal, it was and is a federal program that was developed 
at the same time that Medicare was developed. And the goal, the stated goal of the program is to improve a range of health and medical services for Americans of all ages. It and Medicare came along at a time when medical costs were increasing, medical complexities were increasing, and prior to this, most families were on their own when it came to taking care of medical issues. Here in California, we like to make everything special and unique and branded for ourselves, so we call it Medi-Cal. But in most other states, it's known as Medicaid, except for Kansas, where it is called CanCare. Isn't that cute? <laughs> and really, at its core, it is about providing key supports and services to people through a state and federal funding partnership. And we know that the federal government, when they pay for something, have strings attached. So we're going to talk a little bit about what some of those strings are. I was at a budget hearing yesterday, and really the message that we all took home was that we're well past the point in any government funding where you can say, give us money and we'll go do good things. And Medicaid is no, ex no exemption. So who qualifies for Medicaid? This is going to become important later. All states are required to cover certain populations in Medicaid. First are families with minor children who are living under the federal poverty level. The additional population that's required is individuals with disabilities on SSI. And usually, people with developmental disabilities find Medicaid eligibility, especially adults, through the second category. Some states, through the Affordable Care Act, chose to expand Medicaid eligibility, including California. And we provided Medicaid eligibility to individuals at a slightly higher income level, 138% of federal poverty level, as well as childless adults. Medicaid is funded, as I mentioned, through a state and federal financing partnership. And in government, we have to have acronyms for everything. So FMAP is the state's percentage of federal reimbursement for its Medicaid services. California and about 14 other states have a 50% FMAP. And this means for every $2 that California spends in Medicaid services, the federal government reimburses the state $1. A state's FMAP percentage is determined by its overall economic prosperity. So California and about 14 other states are at the lowest end of FMAP because they are the most prosperous economically. I looked it up this morning, and the state with the highest FMAP is Mississippi. In Mississippi, the FMAP is over, 70, it's over 75%. So to put it in context, for every $4 that Mississippi spends on Medicaid services, they get three federal dollars back. Additionally, there's an old virtue in government that you pay for what you want to see more of. 
So there are little bonus FMAPs for things that the federal government wants to see more of, to incentivize states to make changes. For example, when we were talking a couple of minutes ago about the Affordable Care Act expansion population, the way that the federal government incentivized states to expand funding and expand eligibility to that population was through changing the FMAP for those populations. So for instance, in the early years of the Affordable Care Act, some of those programs were reimbursed at 90%, even if the state's FMAP was 50%. So there were huge incentives for states to jump on board, but we know not all states did. The federal government, as I mentioned, has strings that they attach to Medicaid funding. Each state must submit what are called state plan amendments to the federal government for review and consideration. A state plan amendment outlines how and under what circumstances services will be provided. And those are known as SPAs because again, we need acronyms for everything. It's important to know that a SPA is something, is a service that is, that is provided to all eligible people who are Medicaid eligible within the state. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, again, we have an acronym, but this one's weird because there should be two M's, it's CMS, approves, denies, or comments on SPA applications. And this is how the federal government controls the quality and expectations for services that are provided. Fun fact, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services used to be called Healthcare Financing Administration, but it sounded too bureaucratic, and the acronym for that was pronounced HICFA. So CMS kind of rolls off the tongue a little better. So there are four basic rules in Medicaid. First, whatever a state puts in their state plan amendments must be provided statewide. There must be comparable services, so there have to be standards that explain in what instances services will be provided, and those services are then available to everyone who is a Medicaid recipient who needs those services and meets the criteria. There have to be reasonable promptness, so there, you have to have time and distance requirements for meeting needs. And there must be provider choice. So you can't say, this is our orthopedist, take it or leave it. For an entire state. There are different mandatory benefits for adults and children with the belief at the federal level that children with appropriate services and supports can reach their developmental potential. But for adults, there's a very specific list of the things that, are, that Medicaid is required to pay for. For children, it's a much broader, much softer kind of list. And it's provided through a program called EPSDT, which stands for Early Periodic Screening, Diagnostic, and Treatment. And I believe that the next speakers will go into a little more detail on this, but it really is a scheme whereby children are supposed to receive services that they need 
and including screenings and um, diagnostic work, and that they're supposed to receive treatment to address their developmental needs. So there aren't supposed to be these hard caps on services like you will often find in the adult service system. So let's talk about what services are actually mandatory for adults. Inpatient and outpatient hospital services, nursing facilities, home health, physician, family nurse practitioner services, laboratory and x-ray services, family planning, birth center, nurse midwife, and tobacco cessation, only if you're pregnant, and transportation to medical care. That's it. Those are the mandatory services. But states are allowed to go beyond that to provide what are called optional benefits. And if you're looking at this list, you can probably think of a lot of holes that would exist in a state if those are the only guarantees, if those are the only medical safety net for adults eligible for Medicaid. So let's talk a little bit about other services. And when you see the list of optional services, you'll go, oh my goodness, I can't imagine a state not providing some of these. So, for example, prescription drug coverage is not mandatory. Physical speech, occupational therapy, rehabilitative services, podiatry, optometry and eyeglasses, dental care, private duty nursing, inpatient psychiatric services, um, for two specific populations, and hospice care. So California has gone well beyond the list of mandatory services and provides many of these optional benefits as well. Okay, so those are the basic foundations, and now we're going to talk a little deeper into Medicaid theory and practice. I know everyone was looking forward to this. So optional benefits. I wanted to highlight a few of the optional benefits that I didn't have on the prior list that really are key and critical for individuals with developmental disabilities. One of the optional benefits is personal care. Here in California, we provide this as in-home supportive services, which is personal care that an individual directs themselves through the IHSS program. They select their own providers. They manage their uh, staff themselves. It's a system that is developed to help people to remain in their homes rather than in an institutional setting. So remember I said the federal government sometimes puts out little Easter eggs to make states do things? Encourage, not make. The community first choice option, known as the 1915K state plan amendment, is one of those things. So in this program, it targets people who have a level of care that would otherwise put them potentially in a nursing facility, and it allows for the provision of services such as personal care through this program at an increased FMAP of 56 rather than 50%. And you may be thinking, wow, that's a lot to do for six additional percentage points. But 
it is something that the state of California was doing for the most part anyway through our IHSS program. And so for eligible individuals, we created a 1915K program to seize that additional 6%, which amounts to hundreds of millions of dollars in the state of California. An additional optional benefit is case management. California, again, provides this through a program called Targeted Case Management, and there are various community agencies that uh, provide this service, such as regional centers and um, other service systems. Services in an intermediate care facility for individuals with intellectual disability. That's another benefit that we provide here in California. And then I want to talk briefly about the state plan home and community-based services, or the 1915-I state plan amendment. So this is a service that is provided only to individuals with a developmental disability, and the definition that was used is the same definition that was used for regional center eligibility. And it allows the state to capture significant federal dollars for the provision of regional center services. Things like residential care, um, supported living, uh, transportation, a whole array of services that previously the state hadn't found a way to bill the federal government for for certain populations. We'll talk a little bit more in a few minutes about how the state is recovering federal funds for other populations supported by regional centers. But I did want to put it on your radar that this was a program that was developed as a result of the Affordable Care Act that allowed the state to capture additional federal dollars for regional center services. So those are all state plan amendments. State plan amendments are those things you have to provide to people as long as they meet the basic eligibility criteria. But beginning in 1981, the federal government decided that states could waive certain Medicaid requirements. Remember, we talked about there needs to be comparability, there needs to be statewideness, there needs to be a whole variety of um, guarantees to people in the Medicaid population. But beginning in the 80s, states could waive certain Medicaid requirements, and we call these programs where there's a waiver of requirements. We came up with the catchy name of waivers. So the 1915C waiver allows for the waiver of comparability and statewideness to provide home and community-based services. What this means is that this type of waiver allows the state to provide services just to a specific population. And that population is then entitled to a very specific package of services that's not available to the broader Medicaid population. So in California, our biggest 1915C waiver is our Developmental Disabilities Waiver. And it allows for people who are served by the regional center, who have significant deficits in um, life skills to 
receive services and for the state to receive reimbursement from the federal government at a 50% match for those services. Now, we talked a little bit a few minutes ago about the 1915-I state plan amendment. And what that did was allow the state to bill for these same services, but for people who did not meet the criteria for the state's developmental disabilities waiver. So maybe it was people who didn't meet criteria for admission to an ICF facility, which is one of the requirements of the 1915C. You have to say, if not for these services, this person may be supported in this other environment. Whereas the 1915I is much broader. So together, the 1915I and the 1915C allow for the state to recoup approximately 40% of the cost of regional center services and supports to people. And this is a huge deal because we're operating in a system that's well north of $6 billion today. And so about $2.5 billion is coming from the federal government to support our system. So there are some rules about waivers. As I mentioned, they allow for the provision of additional services. The services must be cost effective. So if you are providing services, it has to be cheaper on the aggregate than providing those same services to people in an institutional setting. States can cap enrollment on their waivers. And each person is limited to participation in only one waiver. So many states control the size of their developmental disability system by capping enrollment in their waiver. In California, we have, I think last time I checked, somewhere around 140,000 people on our waiver. But other states cap their waivers not based on demand, but based on fiscal realities. So there are states that say, hey, of course you're entitled to waiver services through basically their structure that looks something like regional centers as soon as a slot opens up. And so there are states in this country where individuals can wait for services for decades. So one of the things we always talk about in California is that we pride ourselves on there's not a wait at the front door. There's not the acknowledgement of a need and then people being turned away until someone exits the waiver by either moving out of state or passing away. We don't do that. And so we always talk about this entitlement, and it's a very lofty thing that we talk about, but we need to recognize that's the impact. In California, people who have a developmental disability can apply for services, and if found eligible, can receive the services they need. In other states, people apply for services and are told, absolutely, you qualify, and we'll get back to you. So this is a huge deal. I want to talk for a moment about Katie Beckett. And Katie is a reminder that one person, one individual story can make a huge fundamental difference. So when Katie was four months old, she got very sick. And at the end of her illness, she ended up being dependent on a ventilator many hours of the day. 
And the weird way that federal Medicaid rules work, if a child lives at home with their family, the family's income is considered when determining if the child is Medicaid eligible. But if a child lives on their own, in this case in a hospital, their family size is one. It is only that child that is considered because they're not considered to be living with their family. And Katie's family wasn't a family of high means, but was high enough not to qualify for Medicaid. And so Katie lived continuously in a hospital for three years. Because if she left that hospital, she would rejoin her family and she would no longer qualify for any services. And it's interesting because at the time, Katie's care in inpatient hospitalization was... Um, I think about $6,000 a month. I would love to see us return to those days, right, where $6,000 gets you a month of hospital stay with ventilator dependence. But nonetheless, her care at home would have been $1,000. And her mother pushed the issue and raised it and pushed the federal government. And the story made it all the way to President Reagan, who said, this is ridiculous. And based on Katie... The institutional deeming program was created where children with significant disabilities can qualify for Medicaid regardless of family income to allow those children to stay at home. And at the time, the belief was that one or 200 kids would be helped. We've hit half a million children that Katie's journey has touched. So, this brings us to what can we do about all this? We hear a lot of discussion at the federal level about Medicaid. How many people watched the debates in December where legislators were talking about we need to do something about Medicaid and we need to fix it and we need to do all of these things? And what you heard a lot about was the desire to control costs in the Medicaid program. But I will tell you, when people think about Medicaid outside of our arena, if we close our eyes and think about somebody we know who's on Medi-Cal, we probably are thinking about people with developmental disabilities because that's our reality. But lawmakers weren't thinking about that. They were thinking about the other population people who are on Medicaid because of low socioeconomic status. So a lot of these debates went on and on. Additionally, another uncertainty is always the state budget. We saw during the recession the cutting of benefits that were optional, things like adult dentistry, things like uh, eyeglasses, those kinds of things where the state made tough, de tough decisions related to those optional benefits it would provide. So those are some of the uncertainties in our world. And it's important that people who know the reality of individuals with developmental disabilities and their families and the supports that are oftentimes needed, it's important that we become part of that conversation, that we stay informed, that we get engaged, that people tell their own stories, and at the end of the day, 
that we all show up. So I spend a lot of my life reading political commentary. And I sit there with my hot tea in the morning and I read and read and read Politico and the papers and all of this. And it can be a little bit overwhelming. Has anyone else been overwhelmed by the news and the, of politics lately? So here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to just say, forget it, throw up your hands, and give it up. Find some trusted sources and stay engaged, stay informed, but don't obsess about it. Don't sit there and wring your hands and say, what are we going to do? Because action planning is next. But find sources you trust, read those, stay on top of it, and put it away. But keep it in the back of your head and keep track of when important things are coming up in healthcare policy debates. First and foremost, you need to know who your representatives are. You can go to uh, the Assembly or Senate website here in California or the website for the Senate or um, the House of Representatives. Find out who your representatives are. And then do something remarkable. Go out and meet them. They hold events in your communities. Um, Our state-level representatives often hold coffee get-together kinds of things. Call or write Get to know them. And then when there are key votes coming up, call or write to them. And it's not because one person's voice is going to make a difference. Excuse me. It's because so few people actually pick up that phone that for every phone call they get, they assume there's 100 people just like you sitting in their districts. Call them. When you tell your story, there are some guidelines. But first and foremost, know that stories are powerful. Know that there are people who are paid to work Capitol Hill, who wear suits, who look very professional, and who are a dime a dozen. But know that you are the expert in your own story and that those stories of real-life people are the most compelling. When you tell your story, be short, be clear, be truthful, be constructive, focused, and memorable. Don't hide the lead. Put it out in front. But also, let them know what it is you need. Let them know what it is that makes a difference in the lives of either yourself or your family members or the people you support. Because those things, thank you, those things make a difference and they make an impact. When people work in legislative settings, they are so removed oftentimes from what I like to call real people. Because they don't get the opportunity to spend time hearing from actual people who are impacted by policies. So those things are very, very powerful. Showing up. Find out when the hearings are and go if you can. It was interesting during last fall's uh, healthcare debate, one of the most effective groups is a group called ADAPT. Has anyone heard of them? And one of the things they did was try to change the face of a Medicaid recipient 
in people's minds, and they were very effective. These are people who have significant disabilities who came in wheelchairs and staged what they called a die-in. So they, um, they removed themselves from their wheelchairs and refused to get up. And many of them got arrested. But they sent a message that a few people can be very powerful. And they shifted the debate to remind people that when you're talking about a Medicaid recipient, you're talking about a whole swath of our population. And that you need to understand that when you're looking at dollars and cents, that you're talking about real people's lives and their support needs. And that those things have value. So go to hearings if you can. Additionally, Watch for hearings outside of Sacramento or Washington. Sometimes there are hearings that take place in other locations. And find public meetings or forums where your legislators are going to be. They will remember you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.